Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IamRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm an exercise physiologist, do content for Eat to Perform, Director of Education, Mindset Performance Institute, and owner of Extreme Human Performance, and instructor for Globe University, blah, blah, blah. So we're on site uh, in San Diego uh, talking about the experimental biology meeting, and we thought we would just do at least a a brief installment here on all of the juicy things that we've been seeing and we've been promising you about. So um, I have a list here of things that I'm going to sort of uh, futz through on my phone uh, just to let people know what we're uh, learning because, again, as we've been mentioning in past weeks, Gosh, some of this stuff won't appear in journals for weeks or textbooks for potentially a year or two. So, um, so here we go. We're just going to do a, a sort of a roundup. Uh, one of the first things that I wrote down was about red meat and cardiovascular risk. So that this may make some of you feel good that are, uh, you know, uh, red meat ophilic, uh, but the. The folks at Purdue, and I got actually a card from uh, Lauren O'Connor, who is uh, a part of this research, but they did a meta-analysis. So if you're not familiar, that's a study of other studies uh, of red meat consumption. They were looking at um, just half a serving increases, and their hypothesis was actually that it was going to worsen heart disease risk. Mm. And um, contrary to their hypothesis, and maybe to their credit, they said their data after looking across many studies was that there was no increase in cardiac risk with that extra, I think it was less than two ounces of red meat, but, uh, so it's pretty small addition, right? Yeah, it was. And I just, I almost find it interesting that they just assumed that it would worsen cardiac risk. I actually asked the presenter a little bit about, well, you know, that's contrary to public understanding. So, you know, what might be counteracting the saturated fat or whatever usually gets to blame, uh, is there something good in the red meat, like carnosine or some? And she said, no, there's nothing good. We're just saying it doesn't do anything bad. So there was still <laughs> sort of this reluctance to suggest that there might be something beneficial, I guess. you got to keep searching for those evil components. Yeah, I, I guess. But anyway, they reported, you know, it, it didn't do anything to cardiac risk. Now, that doesn't mean that those of you who eat three pounds of uncooked red meat every day or have zero risk. But I just think it's interesting that the red meat is finally getting a little bit less... Um, heat and, you know, demonization. Uh, the next one is body mass index uh, is bogus, is what I wrote down. <laughs> and the interesting thing about this, we were just talking about this. I read a lay paper, some of you know, in the last few weeks about this. And, um, uh, yeah, there were some people at Penn State, uh, Theon Cheng, uh, very cool lady, and she was basically talking about 
different indices of health status and about how really body mass index is just not that great of a marker of health status. So I won't bore you with all the details, but they looked at all kinds of things, um, blood pressure and blood glucose. I think there was insulin data. There's a whole lot of stuff there. And, um, yeah, I think her, her main thrust, the main point was that we've got to get away from this as a marker of health status. Now, we did agree, just like we talked about on air a few weeks ago, that when those NHANES trucks drive around and we're trying to get the fingers on the pulse of the, the public, you can't stick everybody in an MRI or some kind of fancy DEXA unit. You've got to do some pretty basic stuff. Um, but having said that, I think her work is really going to start to uh, change that. And if I recall right, she was actually looking at older people, too. Yeah, and, I was going to ask about the population in that study. Yeah, uh so we had a little discussion about age and, you know, there is a kind of obesity called sarcopenic obesity where you're getting fat and losing muscle at the same time. Doubly screwed. Yeah, which is just, you know, <laughs> the ultimate sin to a lot of weightlifters, of course. Uh, but it's just interesting that she was saying that even in the elderly, even people I think it was over 65 years of age, the body mass index and health connection was very rough and mm. I, and how we really need to move away from it. So before I ramble too long, you want, you want to do a couple, Mike? Yeah, I went to one that was called Potential Mechanisms of Action for Exogenous Ketone Enhancement of Ischemic Wound Healing in Young and Aged Fisher Rats. Holy cow. I know. Sounds pretty complex. Um, but what it was very interesting, it was from Dom D'Agostino's lab. Uh, presenter was uh, Dr. Shannon, looks like Kelsey, Kelsey. And uh, ischemic wound injury, ischemic meaning that they're not getting very good blood flow, oxygen, things of that nature. And by giving the rats a ketone supplement, so as most people may or may not know, you can get a supplement now. There's both over-the-counter versions and some that are not over-the-counter versions, considered more of a medical drug currently, uh, such as ketone esters and things related to that. Um, the ketone salts are considered an over-the-counter supplement so far. Probably will stay that way. And what's interesting, by just supplying more ketones, so if you take like a ketone salt, it actually puts you into nutritional ketosis within about 20 minutes, and even in humans. The nice part about that is that ketones are an alternate fuel source, which normally only show up during long periods of starvation, or super high-fat diets, relatively low to moderate protein, very, very low carbohydrate diets, kind of the classic ketogenic diet. And this was the first study I've seen that showed that it actually enhanced wound healing. So one of the downsides of being in what they call nutritional ketosis is you may have to do a very low carbohydrate diet, high fat, for a long period of time. Well, now if you can use an over-the-counter supplement, and get into ketosis within 20 minutes, it made it more practical for different applications. So I've used different versions of the ketones just to try it out, and you know, blood glucose does go down. What was interesting in the rat study is that they did not change their diet. It appeared that they had a normal sort of carbohydrate diet for rats, and just by giving them the ketone supplement, was enough to bump up their levels of ketones and enhanced wound healing in this case. That's amazing to me. Yeah. 
there is a bright future for that stuff. I, there's just too many applications, it sounds like. Because how bizarre is it, right, that the human body, yeah. like you said, normally you're forced in some way into ketosis. Right. And if you could instantly induce yeah. the presence of ketones, I, yeah. I, I know, like, think about, like, Phil's recovering from surgery. Does that mean, could that extend to healing like that? Well, that's I mean, what I've wondered, too. And they don't have much data. I'm actually talking to another guy from their lab probably tomorrow or the day after. Um, but... Yeah, it's one of those things I know they're looking at doing some human studies also, too. Um, but with the ketone supplement, it makes, I think, a lot of those things much more practical now than they used to be. That's cool. Uh, let me fire a few more. Uh, those of you who take a magnesium supplement as part of a zinc magnesium or just magnesium supplement, uh, I've actually been doing this more lately. Hmm. Um, Does that anecdotally seem to help? I think it does, whether like relaxation before bed or sure. even just a little bit lower blood pressure, you know, that kind of stuff. But uh, there was an interesting talk. It was a, a model of how to assess the best magnesium supplements. Hmm. And um, the interesting thing about this was uh, magnesium bisglycinate. And I don't know if you can even find this readily in commercial products right now, but magnesium bisglycinate had something like three times better absorption in this cell model than traditional forms of magnesium, like people might be familiar with hmm. uh, magnesium citrate and that sort of thing. So, uh, I don't know, keep your eye out for products that contain magnesium bisglycinate, uh, because like I said, three times more absorption. If that model is a, you know, a direct parallel with human intestines, then wow. I mean, because of course the problem with magnesium is if you take more than about 350 milligrams or so, you get diarrhea because you can't absorb it. You can, and, yeah. 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 Well, not everybody at that dose, I suppose, but many people, you know, gas or, or diarrhea. So, um, magnesium citrate is what they use to sort of clean you out before your colonoscopy too. Yep. Right. <laughs> yeah. Lack, definite laxative effect. It's, but we want to get that in to the body. Yeah. You know, so not just passing through. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So magnesium bisglycinate it was cool. Uh, let me offer one more before I move back to Mike. Uh, there was an interesting paper on uh, vitamin E and measuring your vitamin E status. So if anybody, I know a lot of people look at their vitamin D status or vitamin E. In fact, we're doing a little bit of research at the university with this right now. But vitamin E, if you get your blood work checked, apparently it's pretty controversial whether or not you can just look at straight blood concentrations of vitamin E, like you might get done at a hospital of alpha-tocopherol, the vitamin E, or if you need to express it per unit of blood lipids, of circulating lipids. Hmm. Uh, because uh, apparently there was uh, this question came up in the research that was presented that uh, people who have metabolic syndrome, you know, they're, they're poor carbohydrate handlers, they have higher blood fats, uh, that they... They might look like they have more vitamin E in their blood, but it's simply because they have more fat in their blood, and vitamin E is fat-soluble. doesn't mean they're healthy and they have all these extra antioxidants. Mm. So if you get your vitamin E levels checked, and I would think this might extend to vitamin D on some level too. I, I, I don't know, but the study was about vitamin E, and uh, you might want to, like I said, get it expressed both as a regular concentration you know, per unit of blood, but also per unit of lipid in your blood if you have higher blood fats. So, what else you got, Mike? Uh, another very cool poster that was three hours of intermittent hypoxia increases circulating glucose levels in healthy adults. What I really liked about this is a poster from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. 
is that, as the title suggests, they used actually healthy adults, so no rats were harmed in the study. And what was really interesting is that you think about what is intermittent hypoxia, and the model they used to create it was pretty aggressive. Uh, but Lonnie and I were talking before the show that if, if you're using a CPAP or a machine at night because you've got some sort of obstructive breathing thing and you could you know, very easily have longer bouts of hypoxia and that may be actually pushing up your blood glucose levels. What was interesting is that the greatest rise in blood glucose levels occurred at about 30 minutes. So it was very fast acting. And the other part that was interesting talking to her is that um, glucose and insulin signaling, she was saying, can actually be done through the carotid bodies. So these little chemoreceptors that you have on the, the vessels. And I thought that was pretty fascinating. And they are hopefully looking at a study where they have patients who came in and had that little part of their vessel resected due to cancer or something else like that. So they the subset of patients don't have that present. So they could then repeat the model and look and see what happens to blood glucose. So the takeaway from all that in English is if you have a hard time sleeping at night and things of that nature, you may want to check your blood glucose and see if it's going high. We also do know that poor sleep will dramatically screw with your blood glucose. I know that from my own measurements and working with um, a few other people, sleep is very much related to that too. So let me give us some info on a um, little bit more on one of the mechanisms of that. All right. What else did we learn about here? Actually, uh, one of the students here, a biochemistry student, <laughs> he, um, he introduced me to a product. I thought I'd throw this out. A lot of you may know about this. I hadn't seen this before, but grinds coffee pouches. And I don't know if they're primarily targeted people who are trying to stop with the dip or what they're doing with you know uh, oral tobacco products. But um, I was tired as hell, and, <laughs> it, and I wasn't about twenty minutes later. So what is it? it it's just coffee in a pouch. Essentially, I think you put between your cheek Sticking and gum. Your lip. Yeah. Oh, I bet the dentist loved that. Well, you know, I mean, well, co- coffee, coffee is supposed to be directly. Right? Yeah, and it's supposed to be good for oral health. I mean, at least yeah. drink drank coffee. Drinking, is, yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, I just thought it was interesting because it was sort of being used off-label, maybe, to get a little bit more alertness. And so, oh, he's got one right here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I have to try that tomorrow. Yeah, you can't do it. <laughs> well, when we're recording, we'll sound funny. <laughs> huh. Anyway, so that was, it was it's a cool sidebar. Um, let me offer one thing, though, about vitamin D and fat burning or body fat loss. So if you've heard about vitamin D and strength, that's a thing. Uh, there's been meta-analyses done on this. In fact, I was reading some stuff about vitamin E potentially helping with strength as well. But here's one on vitamin D. The title is essentially that vitamin D regulates energy substrate metabolism to reduce fat accumulation in fat cells. Hmm, so, nice. yeah, Right? Um, so uh, let me look at this quickly here. It's, here's the conclusions from the paper. And again, this paper was, uh, if I didn't mention, this was uh, from Purdue University by Brianna Larrick and her colleagues, but uh, the conclusions, quote, vitamin D stimulates fatty acid oxidation or burning, right, and potentially glycerol synthesis, uh, which would be a backbone for, you know, fat formation, Mm -hmm. while reducing glucose use as a substrate 
for fat synthesis. In other words, it's a building block for fatty acid synthesis. So it's both helping burning and reducing the storage. These changes in metabolism may contribute to the reduction in uh, triglyceride accumulation uh, by vitamin D and protect against excessive fat mass accumulation. So that's interesting stuff. I would have to dig more into the dose, but... Uh, I'm do they gonna... measure D status then in the study, or how do they look at that? Because I wonder if they're looking at people that happen to be just super vitamin D deficient, and they saw sort of a body composition effect, or... Yeah, I, I was cutting mostly to the conclusions, to be completely honest yeah. with that, because it's a cellular kind of thing. Yeah, it's more um, mechanistic, though. Yeah, I'll try to tweet about this as I get more information, but... That's fascinating. I, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's safe to say that vitamin D may help with both uh, fat burning and reducing fat storage. So if you're already taking uh, 3,000, 5,000 units, whatever it is, for a day of vitamin D for strength, uh, it may actually help with body comp in ways that we didn't even uh, maybe think about before. Yeah, because the literature on vitamin D and performance is pretty mixed. I mean, in general, it's a gross oversimplification. If your levels are pretty good, you know, more is probably not going to enhance it. If they're really crappy, eh, it may help a little bit, but yeah. very interesting. Uh, Mike and I talked about this, oh gosh, I was thinking it was months ago, but many people are low D, you know, oh, yeah. and this time of year that'll start to turn around because of sun exposure. Uh, yeah, but the literature is very interesting with that kind of stuff, so... Yeah. And I would add that if you're going to get vitamin D tested and you're from a northern climate, now is probably the perfect time to do it because if you're going to be low, this is the time it's probably going to show up because of you're just coming out of the winter months. So I would say if you're thinking about getting tested, you can do it. You can get a blood spot test through the mail, I think. I had a client do one the other day for like 45 or 50 bucks. So obviously request it from your physician. Most of the time they'll run it. Yeah, it's worth it. I mean, it's one of the few micronutrients that in the the Western world, I would argue, that yeah. there's a lot of deficiencies still. Yeah. What else you got? Uh, one interesting study, I won't go into too much, that's talking about the abuse of psychostimulants and bath salts by rats. So <laughs> <laughs> it was actually more of a mechanistic study, and it was actually really interesting. They were comparing, like, methamphetamine and MDMA to different components in bath salts to try to figure out, you know, what is actually going on for different uh, behavioral things. And then one other one is, I won't give the formal title, but I'll give it to you anyway. It's dietary supplement with fish oil prevents high fat diet induced enhancement of sensitivity to locomotor stimulating effects of cocaine. And the short version is, if you're a rat doing a lot of cocaine, fish oil may help. <laughs> <laughs> we so do it all. We do it all for you, people. That's right. Don't, don't give your rats cocaine. We do DHA, man. <laughs> you know, I'm going to start to condense some of this, uh, maybe even more. And again, I can try to tweet. We actually have photos of some of these things. We're not supposed to take the photos. But, yeah, that's why we uh, tweeted the. Yeah, photos. yeah. You know, try to offer a little bit, right? Yeah. Uh, one of the uh, papers that I looked at, the posters, because a lot of this is from harvesting posters. Some of these are podium talks, but uh, like the red meat uh, not being problematic, at least in moderation, there was a paper on coconut oil reducing heart disease risk. And I just think this is very interesting because if you've listened to many dietitians over the years, they'll say saturated fat is bad for heart disease risk. Well, 
although it's a medium chain fat, it's still a saturated fat. And I think a lot of dietitians would say, don't consume coconut oils if you, you know if you have cardiac risk. Uh, I think a lot of uh, people in the weightlifting community have already embraced coconut oil in different ways, um, or even unprocessed palm oil. Again, another saturated fat. But um, and I think the argument usually is that they raise HDL. So if you raise your good cholesterol, you know you're not that screwed. But I think not only are you not that screwed, the poster that I was looking at. Uh, really suggest that it just straight up reduced cardiovascular risk. So uh, I guess science just progresses. I think we're just moving inexorably away from this idea in the 80s and 90s, eat a low-fat or fat-free diet, uh, and not just eat healthy fats like avocados or olive oil or a monounsaturate like that, but a saturated fat, you know, like coconut oil, to reduce cardiovascular disease, it's... It's just kind of amazing to me. Now, don't get me wrong. Saturated fats have pros and cons. All fats have pros and cons. They're all nutraceuticals. Uh, but I don't know. I just thought it was sort of amazing to be, go to a nutrition conference and be talking to dietitians and they're, you know, uh, the researchers and the dietitians are taking a more serious look at a saturated fat like coconut oil to reduce your heart disease risk. So, Yeah, and a couple other ones. Uh, physiologic and Pharmacokinetic effects of e-cigarette type exposure to delta nine tetrahydrocannabinol, which is THC. Like all of a sudden, I'm like into the the, the rats doing drugs or something <laughs> here. And I didn't get a chance to talk to the researcher, but I wanted to know how he got the rats to smoke e-cigarettes. But I maybe they just exposed them to the vapor or something like that. But I just pictured rats sitting around smoking e-cigarettes of marijuana, but. <laughs> What was interesting is that they showed that it has different properties on the physiologic time of action. It was much shorter, and that it looks like it may be beneficial specifically for pain or different changing the amount of what's called nociception. Um, so I thought that was actually pretty interesting that a lot of states now it's uh, legal to use marijuana for medical uses and the possible way that it's administered may actually change the the course. And anecdotally, I have some friends who have kind of chronic diseases, MS and other diseases, and they will oftentimes report that, and they live in states where it's legal, have a license from their physician, that the pain effects of it, if they vaporize it, is actually much better than other forms. Hmm. Uh, I've got one more here, too, and... This is very interesting. It's looking at targeting trauma-induced blood-brain barrier disruption. So when you get whacked in the skull, maybe you're doing mixed martial arts or football or whatever, it was interesting to note that the blood-brain barrier can get disrupted. And if you think about what the blood-brain barrier there is for, it's there to prevent other things from coming into the brain that are not supposed to be there. So not only did you get whacked in the skull, you possibly have some sort of TBI, traumatic brain injury. Now you may have a blood-brain barrier that's disrupted. So you're getting all sorts of other stuff crossing into the brain, potentially really messing with inflammation, things of that nature. Um, I asked if there's a good way to look to see if the blood-brain barrier is disrupted. So you can do like an MRI with like gadolinium, which has been used in cardiac stuff in the past. One other method, but most people won't be able to do that. 
I know some of the functional med people will use a high dose of GABA, and that if they see an effect, that GABA by itself should not cross the blood-brain barrier. So the theory is that maybe your blood-brain barrier has some issues. It's called the GABA challenge. Uh, so I asked him about that, and he said, not really sure. Um, in terms of brain health, when I was talking to him, he said the best things are DHA, so fish oil. And he also mentioned alpha-lipoic acid has been shown to be pretty beneficial. And there's also some other studies I've talked about in the past with creatine. We saw at ISSN a couple of years ago. They gave rats a bunch of creatine, and they whacked them on the skull and measured the effects. And that creatine, if given beforehand, seemed to be pretty beneficial. Uh, in this case, he was saying that after the injury, that his um, guess would be that DHA and alpha-lipoic acid may be beneficial. So in English, if you get kind of whacked in the head and you've got you know, concussed or traumatic brain injury, you may want to pay more attention to your diet. Probably a good reason to maybe eat a quote-unquote cleaner diet, things of that nature. You know, Maybe even go as far as avoiding gluten or other things that you may not have had a sensitivity to before. If your blood-brain barrier is all hosed up, you may now have sensitivities that you weren't expecting either. Oh, what else do I have here? Um, Don't sound so excited there. Well, I'm just kind of looking at my list. (laughs) Here's one about protein dose per meal. And Ah. I swear for years all we heard about was, you know, per kg daily. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So... uh, this is about getting 25 or 30 grams of protein per meal as red meat. And they were looking they were looking at physical performance. Uh, this is an older adults because they could lose physical performance. But the title is Influence of Daily and Per Meal Protein Intakes on Function uh, and of Body Composition in Obese Older Adults Undergoing Weight Reduction. So you might think, well, that doesn't apply to me, but it's still interesting because as you age, we know that, you like, for example, you might become anabolic resistant, you need more mm-hmm. protein. Uh, they were actually looking at meal patterns, and they were suggesting that the typical protein pattern is actually minimal at breakfast and lunch and, and a big surge at dinner. And mm-hmm. what they try to do is give people a more even pulsing of protein, again, just 25 or 30 grams, uh, but regularly throughout the day. Uh, and let me just skip to some of the conclusions here um, in discussion. It says per meal protein enhancement is feasible, is safe, and is effective. I guess they could have just asked weightlifters about that, but okay. <laughs> um, they also looked at a short physical performance battery. So they weren't just looking at body composition, how much muscle tissue you have, but how functional is that muscle tissue? And as it turns out, pretty darn functional. Uh, it says both metrics, uh, the number of meals over 25 grams a day, the total protein intake in grams per day were significantly correlated with a, this change in this short uh, physical performance battery, uh, underscoring the protein to function a connection. Uh, now, they do know it says, and maybe this is the typical cultural disclaimer, However, findings from this pilot trial are not conclusive regarding meals and total protein intake, and we need further study. Uh, But anyway, it's just interesting that a lot of the things that I think resistance athletes have embraced for years are getting applied to older adults and things like that. 
and uh, they have more muscle tissue, and in fact, it is more functional just because they're getting 25 or 30 grams, in this case of red meat, um, at at least three meals throughout the day. Yeah, I know um, years ago, Patton Jones had presented some of that very similar um, data, and if I remember right, it was 10 grams, 10 grams, and 60 grams at night, and I think he did the equivalent amount of protein over three meals in older adults, and showed, I believe, that there was a benefit to spreading more protein out. Um, I know Stu Phillips has talked uh, about that in the past, too. So yep. more protein, spread it out, good deal. What else here? Uh, here's one about eggs. So it's, you know, it, there's a theme, right? First, I'm hearing red meat, not so bad. In fact, uh, the word that the presenter used it with the red meat was, it's been overlooked that it's actually not a problem. <laughs> I don't know why we just assume it's a problem, but okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, red meats can range. And I said, listen, how do you define red meat? And she yeah. said, we actually didn't. I, and I'm, I'm going back mm-hmm. to the original paper. but So I'm like, red meat, is that hot dogs and bologna yeah. or is that like round steak? Yeah. You know, bring on the salami. Right. So <laughs> anyway, so first there was the red meat, not detrimental. Uh, then we're talking about coconut oil to actually help reduce heart disease risk. Uh and here's another one. This is about eggs, because eggs have been slammed back and forth over the years. Uh, and I saw some interesting papers about a, replacing even oatmeal carbohydrates with eggs. It was a poster. But here's one on, uh, it's called Egg Intake as Part of the DASH Eating Pattern is Linked with Lower Body Fat. Uh, this is in late teens, so later teen years. So maybe thinking like, uh, uh, you know, high school upperclassmen and beyond. But uh So the DASH diet, if you're not familiar, is usually a focus on more fiber, calcium from low-fat dairy, a couple of different factors that are supposed to reduce uh, blood pressure. Uh, But I just think this is interesting because they're talking literally about adding eggs to this specifically. And I was talking with the author. This is – it was Melanie Mott from Boston University School of Medicine. She was very cool. And she was – I was saying literally is there – is there specific combinations with the DASH diet? Is it the calcium in the egg or fiber in the egg? And uh, one of the things seemed to be the fiber intake. So if you can have your eggs in the morning and also get plenty of fiber, uh, it seems to be really beneficial with uh, for body composition. And again, I think this is the kind of thing bodybuilders could have told you forever. You know, have some have your egg whites and your oat bran in the morning yeah. or something, and uh, you know, as part of the, sort of the, the diet. Uh, but there was a, they were looking at a couple of different things. Uh, high egg plus high dairy, mm. you know, may, may be low, lead to lower percent body fat or lower trunk fat. Uh, so, uh, long story short, it sounds like to me that um, they're, fo- they're giving eggs a lot of credit too, like they were with the red meat. And again, it's just sort of interesting because if you look back over the years, they, they weren't always suggested you know, as something that was healthy. And you know what? It might be a bandwagon thing because, of course, earlier this year, they cut the cholesterol restriction guidelines. And they said, you know, forget that. That's bonk. The amount of cholesterol you eat doesn't have enough impact on your blood cholesterol to really do that much. So uh, eggs are, I think, on the upswing. Do you have anything else? No, that's uh, what I got so far. Uh, I did have. I, we saw a few more papers. That I, I, I don't. I don't want to get into details because I really don't have them. But I saw one on dietary protein reducing the muscle loss in middle age. Hmm. That's interesting. But again, I think of a lot of uh, 
our listeners, they might be thinking, guys, you know, this is not that new. Right. We already eat fiber. We already eat eggs. We get the protein from the eggs and the red meat. But if anything, it's it's sort of like what we talked about uh, a week or two ago that a lot of that sort of weightlifter lifestyle, I think, is getting validated. Yeah. And, and sometimes I think to the chagrin of the dietitians who, you know, they're hypothesizing something else, but the data is not supporting what, you know, kind of what they're saying. Yeah, I even got that question yesterday. It was a female athlete who weighs around 140 pounds, exercises a lot, and was told that 140 grams of protein was completely insane. You'd never need that amount, and it was a horrible thing. And if you can go back over you know, several years, I know you've done a whole book, and I helped with a book chapter on protein and resistance exercise. So I think it's getting a lot more validation now, which is good to see. Yep. Okay, I'll, now I'll tell you what. There's a few other uh, studies. I, I just want to bring in a, a couple of the researchers that did it. Uh, there's some of the students that work in our lab, and they're going to talk about uh, coffee. A lot of listeners know that I'm very interested in uh, coffee and its effects on weight training. And we've been looking at lots of things over the years, habituation, uh, gender, things like that. But actually, um, Grant, who's a a biochemistry major, he's going to talk a little bit about a, a different type of lifting. So in the past, we've always done... Uh, the effect of what does coffee do on very strict lifts? We would do a pause at the bottom of like a bench press, for example, and then we'd have them explode maximally with 50% loads. But uh, Grant's having them do reflex-type lifting. Uh, and so, Grant, if you can, I'll just ask you a few things about it. So maybe just a few notes about, like, what are you going to present tomorrow? So actually, you can hear about this <laughs> even before everybody else at the conference does. Um, what's different about what you had people do versus what we already knew with strict lifts? Yeah, so it's uh, you know a little sneak preview. Um, so basically the differences between what I'm doing and what we've done previously with the reflexive benching is instead of having the pause down at the bottom and only doing one repetition of about 50% of your max, this is three self-selected repetitions uh, basically that are on the lifter. And so instead of doing one rep, we're doing three reps. And so it's a little bit more applicable to different lifts because uh, when you're going to go do a workout, most people do more than one rep in a set. So. Right, without a pause. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, if you're not familiar with the stretch reflex, I mean, a lot of lifters are familiar with the concept of speed work, whether it's an accessory movement or even one of the big three kind of movements, if you can somehow... Uh, get a, a brief prior stretch, right? You you set off a a spinal reflex. It doesn't even necessarily involve your brain to any great extent, and it increases the force output of the subsequent rep. So imagine like you know bouncing it off your chest. It's not just the elastic component of that stretch shorten cycle. There's a neural component, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the idea really was if, and we have yet to analyze the the like adrenaline and noradrenaline content uh, in the bloodstream, but uh, I would think almost certainly there's some effect of coffee on those hormones, right? So if you bathe that whole spinal circuit in stimulant compounds, uh, would it fire harder, right? And so what did you find there? Um, basically, what we found was when the subjects were given uh, the via instant coffee dose, uh, 
we found significant improvements in uh, basically bench press velocity and power, and then there were trends to increasing in both force production uh, and time to peak power. And so basically we found when you're giving the subjects the coffee, uh, the combination of the ergogenic aids of the coffee and the central nervous system stimulant of the caffeine, uh, basically, I mean, it, it helped enhance the stretch reflex. Right, more explosive, mm-hmm. right? So there's been some papers that have come out over the last couple of years that if you're doing very heavy lifts and there's not a lot of velocity, like, right, your work, that bar was moving, right? Oh, yeah, that's 50% of your max. Right. It's fairly light. So really heavy loads might require very large doses of caffeine. Uh, We gave two packets of VIA, right? So there's about 160 milligrams in a packet, so Mm 320-ish, right, milligrams of caffeine. Uh, that's somewhere around four milligrams per kg. Now, y- your subject pool is pretty inclusive, right? It included right. what? Uh, basically, our subject pool was around 34 uh, college-age men and women mm-hmm. uh, who had basically at least two years of lifting experience. Um, and they were both, uh, they included habituated and non-habituated subjects uh, to caffeine. So basically, what that means is just people who drink a lot of caffeine and people who don't drink a lot of caffeine. Right. Now, so, now, some listeners, you may say, well, you, what, didn't you look at boys and girls differently? That's just another story, right? But yeah. I think the, the nice thing about starting with a study like this is it's a broad spectrum of people, so you can, you can make at least some level of conclusion on almost everybody, mm-hmm. right? Regular drink, coffee drinkers, those who don't, boys, girls, you know, the whole spectrum. And uh, again, listeners, if you're not familiar, there are pieces of equipment, and we have one in our lab called a ballistic measurement system. It's like a tendo unit for those of you that are familiar. It's a little more sophisticated, but uh, you can look at so many different markers of explosion, bar velocity, like Grant said, time to peak power. So that's literally in milliseconds, fraction of a second. How fast can you ramp up and get that kind of dragster effect power in watts. There's just a lot of cool stuff. And that's why we give them a 50% load, right? Because if you put the bars too heavy, it's just going to move too slow to make this stuff happen. But I like what you said about how it it's more reflective of a lot of sports. Because I mean, for example, if you're going to try to jump as high as you can, and I know you're a high jumper, (laughs) but you would never do that without a prior stretch immediately before the jump of some kind, right? Mm -hmm. So I I just think it's a more athletic kind of... uh, lift, you know, and I I, just sort of the Dr. Frankenstein thing kicks in. It makes me think it's not so much that people use caffeine wrong because it probably does. Well, it does enhance stricter lifts. We've Mm -hmm. looked at that before and probably heavier lifts. If the caffeine dose is higher, it might take more caffeine, right? But I think, uh, the interesting thing with this is, uh, not only is it more applicable, but, the explosiveness is something that um, on speed work days, caffeine could actually enhance you more than you think. Like you're not just doing it on a heavy day. You're doing it on a day where you might be doing 50% loads, mm-hmm. 30% loads, and you're doing your speed work as some, part of some kind of uh, conjugate method or you know some other uh, approach. So to those of you who, who do lighter speed work days – uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think that you would still hit the caffeine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, basically what this is kind of showing is whether you're doing, you know, one rep or three rep quick uh, explosive work, like it should give you a benefit either way. 
let me offer one last thing. There was a, there's another researcher from our lab, and uh, she's been looking at the anticipation of coffee. What we've always done in the lab is we, we compare real coffee to decaf. But there were some papers that came out last year that suggested they were uh, using antidepressants and pain meds, different papers. Um, specifically, I think pain meds was the one we looked at the most uh, in our literature review, but that you can have such a placebo effect from decaf coffee that you can have like dopamine responses in your brain and you can have a lot of uh, a sense of alertness and that kind of thing because you're sort of half fooling yourself, right? Even if it's a double-blind study, we're not lying and saying this is coffee when we hand them the decaf. We're just saying this could be coffee, it may not be, but it's 50% anticipation. That's enough to sort of excite some of the pleasure centers in your brain or increase your alertness. But uh, the, the researcher that was looking at this, she wanted to see, did that actually translate into the physical realm? So in other words, can you fool your muscles like you can your brain as far as a sense of alertness? And, and short answer is no, you can't. I mean, real via instant coffee caused the explosiveness and the stretch reflex like Grant was just discussing, uh, but decaf did not. Interestingly, though, the decaf did at least trend toward increasing mental alertness. So they, the decaf... You could trick yourself, maybe your brain, that, hey, this I'm feeling pretty good, but you, you can't move the bar any faster. So unlike some of the studies that came out last year and the year before about like uh, getting a placebo effect for pain, or uh, we saw, and we saw a little, again, placebo effect with mental things like a sense of alertness with that decaf, but you're not moving the bar any faster. And I think uh, maybe one of the take-home messages there is be careful that you're not fooling yourself. I mean, I could see a scenario where somebody was taking a pre-workout product or something. If it didn't really have, if it had some really bogus, you know, ingredients, you still might feel, hey, I feel more alert. And and you might think you're moving the bar faster, but you're not. So uh, you can fool yourself mentally in a sense of alertness, but you're not fooling the barbell. It's not moving any faster. So... Just some interesting stuff about anticipation. Uh, you know, and again, I, I think most people, it, this may be a moot point for many people because you're like, well, duh, you know, Dr. Lowry, I know when I'm taking the supplement, you know, I'm not being presented this in a double blind way. It's true, but it's interesting that you actually need the chemical uh, in order to get that kind of stretch reflex boost. And the decaf just, just won't do it. And that's different, again, than some of those pain studies. So. Okay, uh, that's going to be it. Uh, maybe a little briefer this week, but uh, it's late. Uh, we just wanted to get this get this out to everybody. And again, some some breaking news. Uh, any last thoughts there, Doctor Nelson? No, I thought this was cool. And uh, the nice part is that this will be coming to you. A lot of this was posters. Some of it was like Lonnie was saying, oral presentations. So this is in the process and may not even be in journals yet, much less even on your desktop if you can find it and deluge through the journals. So it's very much cutting edge right from the conference itself. Okay, so that's going to be it for this week. We'll see everybody next time. See you. Hey, listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls 
in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, in their thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.